This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria, session number seven. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now, here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey, everybody, it's Matt here. Thanks for joining me again for session number seven of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. I am thrilled to be bringing to you the long-awaited follow-up to session one of the podcast. For those of you who are on my mailing list, you know that uh, you've had a little sneak peek in terms of who the next guest is, and uh, that is none other than Dr. Greg Hanley. Um, Greg comes back on the podcast to do some follow-up on his unique approach to functional analysis, and we get into not only just the... uh, nitty-gritty of how to do those types of assessments, uh, but also we get into uh, what to do once you have the function of a behavior. And so we talk about not only functional communication training, but also teaching toleration and compliance skills and things like that. Then we get into some really, uh, from what I think of, uh, some pretty cool conversations about what the role is in terms of the relationship to research and practice and, you know, to what it, what comes first. You know, it's depending on who you ask, it can kind of be a chicken or egg thing. Uh, and then we talk about what the proper role of descriptive assessments are, given all that we know about uh, functional analysis being the, you know, more or less gold standard. What do we use uh, descriptive assessments and observations for and things like that? He's got some pretty cool opinions on that as well. I know it's going to be thought-provoking for many of you out there. So rather than me uh, talk on and on and on about what the podcast will contain, I think I'm going to get right to that. However, before getting to the interview itself, I do want to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by bside21.org. And of course, for those of you who have uh, been with the podcast from the get-go, you've heard me talk about bside21.org quite frequently, and it's a it's basically an ABA news site. Um, it talks about behavior analysis in a really uh, everyday, common way. It's a great uh, dissemination tool. They talk about uh, behavior analysis as it's applied to all sorts of stuff. You know, one article that I'm looking at in particular right now is written by Scott Herbst, uh, and Scott, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but uh, uh, Dr. Herbst writes about four behavioral practices to be a better public speaker. And boy, am I going to pay attention to this article because I will be at ABAI in just a few days here, uh, and I'll be talking uh, with uh, Dr. Todd Ward, who is the uh, president of B-Side 21 Media, and uh, Amanda Kelly, uh, a.k.a. The Behavior Babe, and we'll be talking at panel number 49. So please come by and say hello. We'd love to see you there. And finally, before we get to the actual episode itself, I do want to let you know that we did have some Skype problems, and the audio... Uh, was kind of compromised towards the end of the episode. I think most of it's listenable, but uh, please connect with me and let me know if there are sections that you don't hear. Uh, Greg has been generous enough with his time to offer the opportunity to come back. I would love to do a Q&A with him. So if there are follow-up questions that you guys have on functional analysis and function-based treatment, that would be great. We can also talk about some of those other areas of interest, uh, including sleep 
and uh, prevention and things like that. So go to behavioralobservations.com and click the contact page. Send me an email. Let me know what sort of questions you might have. And uh, we can arrange another interview with him and we can do a little bit of a QA. and a So again, without further ado, please enjoy this uh, very fun conversation I had with Dr. Greg Hanley. Greg Hanley, uh, welcome back to the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you doing today? Good, Matt. Uh, nice to be back. Thanks. You know, you have the uh, distinct notoriety of being our first return guest on the Behavioral Observations Podcast. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, you know, and uh, I was thinking like uh, maybe if you come on like you know five times, you can select something from the uh, the prize box, <laughs> the behavioral <laughs> observations prize box. And uh, if I recall correctly I from if I recall correctly from our previous conversation, uh, you identified reinforcers that include um, uh, coffee, cake, and whiskey. Uh, so uh, <laughs> those are my big winners for me. There's no doubt. All right, I'll I'll, I'll have to stock the prize box accordingly. Um, so. <laughs> Um, w- w- with that, with that, uh, I guess introduction completed. Uh, I want to, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed our conversation the last time about the ISCA approach, and uh, which is the uh, interview-informed, synthesized functional analysis. Correct? Do I have those uh, letters correctly identified? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Interview-informed, synthesized contingency analysis. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot uh, to see. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, but it it is it is a functional analysis, just a specific type. So that's why we have that cumbersome acronym. Yep. Um, and so uh, you know, I, I I had the opportunity to go out and give it a whirl. Um, and you know, as we were chatting last time, you know, I I I, I have kind of accidentally approximated some of the things that, about this just mm-hmm. out of trying to practice in less than ideal circumstances in schools and. Um, places like that that don't involve, you know, designated therapy rooms with two-way mirrors and so forth. But this is the first time I actually, you know, kind of, you know, more closely followed the procedure and and purposely synthesized some of the contingencies and things like that. So um, let me start with uh, um, some of the the challenges um, with it and um, with with the case, not necessarily with the procedure per se. so um, there was one individual we hypothesized that, you know, kind of escaped to uh, play uh, was, was, you know, a, you know, were, 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 were factors, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. as identified through the um, open-ended functional assessment interview. Um, and so we tr- initiated a transition from uh, play to work. The work scenario was a little bit contrived. Uh, and that he was coming with me to do some math, and math was identified as something that was really, you know, non-preferred and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, uh, you know, the little guy had the temerity to actually be completely compliant under those circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I uh, uh, haven't had, haven't been back to the to the setting yet to to replicate that. Um, and I know, so the details are a little sketchy from your perspective, I would imagine, but. In the more general, the more general point is, is, you know, what would you say to someone who went through the open-ended interview, um, developed a a hypothesis of the combined contingencies that may be controlling the problem behavior, and then when you set about to actually do the uh, the test, um, didn't really get much? Can you talk about that for a minute? That's a great question. That that situation arises 
it's it's hard to give a number on it. People want to know what's the probability this is going to work, the analysis that is the first time. And we're amassing those data. Uh, Joshua Dessel has a study uh, coming out, and I believe we call it iteration. How many iterations does it take to see a differentiated analysis? Ex- excuse me, Greg. Did you say iteration? It's iteration. Okay. How many times do you have to modify the analysis, basically, before you get an, an outcome that is successful? And I believe in his, uh, we had 30 analyses, and I believe it was 23 out of 30 were differentiated first time, meaning seven required going back to the drawing board, if you will, before we saw a differentiated analysis. And what I mean by going back to the drawing board is uh, re-interviewing, observing the child interacting with their teacher or their parent, or simply looking at our interview to see if there was something written down that we didn't fold into the analysis. Again, the chances of getting a differentiated ISCA seem to be uh, over 70%, uh, but sometimes we do indeed have to go back and re-interview and redesign our analysis or watch again and redesign the analysis. When we have to do a secondary analysis, it's usually because we didn't get the details from the interview. And what I mean by details, they're things like what, what demand should we be using, what type of attention, should we be using? What, how should we divert our attention? Things of that nature. So I, we like to say the devil's in the details. We're going to see that troublesome behavior if we attend to the details properly from the interview. So in this case, if the hunch was that the child is engaging in problem behavior, get out of doing work to play, I mean, the first thing we'd make sure is that we have the right work emulated in the analysis. Uh, historically, I used to show up a functional analysis with materials in a bin before I even met the person. And clearly, I don't do that now. The materials I use are that which the teacher or parent suggest are uh, evocative. I'd want to make sure I have the right materials, both the tangible materials, the play materials, as well as the academic materials. If it appears that I'm emulating the conditions properly, the next step for us is to have someone other than an analyst do the analysis. Uh, some kids truly are reactive when an old guy like me goes into the uh, therapeutic area to try to run the analysis, or perhaps one of my uh, young, stunning-looking graduate students, and the kids just look, look up and stare at them as though, who is this, this angel in my classroom? <laughs> and so when we see that sort of reactivity where they just seem to be stunned by the the new person in the space. So, so are they asking for more work under those circumstances? Yes, I'll do another worksheet. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Uh, it's, it's just that there certainly is reactivity. Sometimes plays out. Now, we meet certain kids where there is absolutely no reactivity. They show out, if you will, as soon as we enter that space. For other kids, they're clearly either more cautious or more taken by the novelty of the situation. Uh, and so it really brings me to a different point. People often ask, uh, where's the best place to do an analysis? For me, it doesn't matter. I, I say, well, I-, I prefer the clinic because it's convenient for us. And that's really, in the, and it's safe. It seems safer. The rooms are cleaner. There's less confounds than doing it perhaps in the natural environment. But 
when we see a child who is not engaging in problem behavior that people historically report under the situations we're emulating, we normally try to get out of the reactive or sterile environment to the more ecologically relevant environment. And that usually involves bringing the people back or bringing the places back. In other words, going from a, a sterile therapy room with an analyst to home with mom, school, classroom with teacher. Mm -hmm. And so in Josh's paper, there were indeed a couple cases. In fact, our, in our 2014 paper, uh, for our first participant, we ran this model with uh, her pseudonym was Dale. She had absolutely no problem behavior with the analyst. And as soon as we put the mom in there, the same exact contingency, same material, same everything differentiated immediately. And so when we say we have to do a second iteration, we have to redesign the analysis, even though we watch again and we interview again, we normally fix it by putting the person or the place that has ecological relevance into the analysis. So um, I'm not sure how far along. So did you? So with those seven studies out of the thirty that were, um, you know, kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, misses. Um, not to put too pejorative a label on it, but um, have you have you redone those yet? And you know, do you do you sure in, in his um, in his paper, all the analyses were ultimately differentiated. Okay, the point was um, that you did say that earlier. I'm sorry, I was yeah. probably no, fidgeting with the microphone okay. setting. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's still a good question. The point is that uh, at least in that study, all 30 cases were differentiated. Just most of them, the first time. There are conditions under which we have to go back to the drawing board, and uh, we wanted to make that clear. That's not really evident in the literature. Some might think, as wow, only 70%. Most published functional analyses are not the first iteration. And uh, there's a great study by, I believe the lead author is Lewis Hagopian. Uh, I know Joshua Jessel is a co-author on it. He came on Java last year. It basically went back through all the files at the Kennedy Krieger Neurobehavioral Unit and asked the question, um, what's the probability of a differentiated analysis the first time we do an analysis? And they got, I believe, 47% on the first iteration. And that's the Kenny Krieger Institute, and they're pretty darn good at doing analyses. Uh, they then also had a secondary iteration and a tertiary iteration. I think by the time they got up to the third analysis, they were in the 80s. The point being is that even experts sometimes do not get it right the first time. And this, the folks at Kenny Krieger Institute are about 47%. We're saying when we do an ISCO, we're in, up in the 70%. So we, I do believe, in my experience, I'm getting better first analysis success when I synthesize contingencies and inform them from an interview. I don't get 100% success the first time. And when I don't, I, I, again, like we said, look back at the information, perhaps talk to people in the know again, and perhaps get these people uh, re-involved in the analysis. Wow, well, 70% certainly beats 47, I, I, I guess. Um, we, we need more. We need to get, I mean, that, that his sample is bigger. Right? We have a smaller sample, and, and it's going to take years of replication by other people, too, not just our group, to see where these numbers land. But we're definitely more successful with what we do now than what we did historically. 
Oh, you know, that brings me to a point I'm, I didn't think of earlier um, when you said replications by other groups. And I know that's sometimes one of the standards that are used, you know, when we document something as quote unquote evidence based is that, you know, there's sure. there's replications, but not just all from the same, you know, uh, research group or laboratory or what have you. Um, are there other folks um, uh, working on this right now or or, um, or you guys uh, have had the, 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 the market cornered? On, uh, on this, well, <laughs> well, we certainly don't want to corner the market. We want the opposite. <laughs> I understand. I just, I'm um, just talking about published research or, yeah. or research strains, if you or whatever mm -hmm. the right term is. Well, it depends how precisely you define this thing, the Hiska thing. Uh, there are many examples of people doing interview-informed analyses that predate our 2014 article, and we refer to some of them in the article. There's many examples of people synthesizing contingencies in analyses historically. Um, and so there are bits and pieces of this strewn throughout the literature. In fact, they go back to the 60s, in fact, the example. So I, I always said, we're not really doing anything new here. We are stitching together things that have been in, in the literature, represented multiple times for quite a long time. Okay. That's, that, that said, I don't, there aren't uh, labs publishing data yet using the model as, as we've described it with specific procedures. In other words, a particular kind of open-ended interview, a test control analysis where uh, synthesized contingencies are the norm, uh, a focus on precursors, uh, another way, a thing, part of our commitment. Uh, Wayne Fisher has a paper that I just reviewed and, and uh, I it was accepted and I know he's working to get it out quickly in Java and it compared uh, this approach with a more traditional functional analysis approach. Uh, so he is doing that. Uh, Jessica Slayton is someone that works in the Choba Learning Group in Massachusetts. She has an article that uh, will be submitted soon that again compares traditional to, uh, to the uh, synthesized model. And so other groups are starting to do this. Uh, again, our, our first, we've talked about ways to trim the functional assessment process since, let's say, 2011 in a book chapter and an article in behavior analysis and practice. We only really published the empirical results of that model in 2014. So we're really only a year into this, and I don't see other groups replicating this if they even care to do so. It won't come out in the journals of the year or so. So okay. I think we've got to give ourselves about five years for these things to percolate, for the, uh, you know, bother doing the kind of research uh, and, and then we'll be able to answer these questions I think, a little better. But I, I certainly hope that people uh, start doing them. I know in practice there are a lot of people doing them. Mm -hmm. In fact, people are doing the ITCA. I emails a lot. I talk to a lot of people. I do a lot of consulting where people are doing these things very effectively. Uh, research groups, by contrast, they have their commitment to how they do a functional assessment and uh, those folks' minds are going to be harder to change, I think, because of those uh, existing commitments. Uh, I certainly do see in the future people doing analyses that are similar to what we're describing. In fact, because they've been done in the past, they just haven't been named as such, and perhaps all the uh, methodological features weren't there. I see. It kind of raises an interesting question of, you know, is the uh, research leading the practice or... You know, if there's a mm. silent majority of us out there doing this sort of thing, you know, is, the, is it the other way around? And, you know, I don't even know if that's, 
you know, the right way to phrase that question or not. But oh no, uh, man, I think you nailed it. That, that to me is one of the most interesting things we talk about with our doc students is what drives, which one drives which. Is it is it really research to practice or is it practice to research? I'll tell you from my own experience. I usually try out independent variables in practice. Mm-hmm. They're somewhat novel. The situation dictates I do something different that I can't find in a journal. And when I do those things different and they seem to work, and it's not just seem to work based on intuition, we use experimental designs in our practice too. And when we see something work in practice that necessarily didn't start out as a research project, sometimes that turns into a research project if we have VO and appropriate content. Sometimes it merely inspires the next research project. A lot of times our research projects are things we've tried to emphasize in practice. Five years later, we're finally finished the research project through the editorial process. So I often tell students, research sometimes lags behind effective practice. Mm-hmm. Then it also uh, inspires effective practice. So it's really, it's it's circular. It feeds in direction. Okay. No doubt. Uh, there's certainly some practitioners that are ahead of the curve with their day. I'm sure there's some great practitioners that see things in Java saying, I've been doing that for a decade. I bet. I bet. And, and I hope their response is, thank goodness somebody went ahead and did the hard science, show that that's effective so other people will also embrace that technology. Um, and, and clearly there are people doing things in practice that they pulled right out of a journal. So again, it, was both ways and i think we need to respect that kind of circular relationship yeah it's definitely a, an interesting philosophical question um or or you know uh, matter if you will so mm-hmm. um another kind of question that just kind of struck me is 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 the 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 role of preparing um students in a way um yeah i guess what's the role of teaching you know you know um, the descriptive assessment process, if you will, uh, especially, I mean, or let me, let me, like, let me circle back to a point, um, relative to my example of the kiddo who, who, you know, didn't respond well, uh, to the test condition. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, one of the strategies you mentioned is obviously ask more questions, get more detail, et cetera. And then you said, do some observation. Yes. Is, is that, does that observation is that casual, or does that echo some of the more you know traditional notions of a, of of the descriptive assessment that we were all taught, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so forth? And I'm just trying to see the the relevance or perhaps lack thereof of that of that you know kind of a mainstay yeah. of behavioral training. Sure, I mean, there's there's a lot of opinion on where descriptive assessments fit or do not fit in this functional assessment process and in our practices in general. Uh, I clearly tend to fall on the side of they're less useful than they appear to be, mm-hmm. um, that, that we are not unique professionals because we do a lot of descriptive data. And if we are, we're not going to be relevant as professionals uh, for too long. Uh, descriptive assessment to me is great. We need to teach it. We need to teach people how do you observe and count in a, in a complicated natural environment. We certainly need skills. But I really emphasize descriptive assessment when I know what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. For instance, if we have a treatment that we know is effective under a certain set of highly controlled circumstances and we're implementing it now 24-7 with grandma, ma, four teachers, one paraprofessional, we might have some eyes on their implementation. We're going to ask questions 
about where they're doing the differential reinforcement properly, where they're providing enough evocative situations properly. We know what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Under those conditions, we do descriptive assessment. We're merely watching and recording behavior environment interactions. And if some behavior resurges, we can then look back at our descriptive data and say, well, perhaps it's this, uh, the integrity with respect to extinction that needs to be correct. So I love descriptive assessment when it comes to treatment fidelity or okay. integrity. Okay? Now, when, now, when it comes to the front end of the process, trying to figure out the controlling variables for problem behavior, I am not a supporter of anything formal. Because anything formal just takes so much time and energy, yields correlations. Yeah. And those correlations are often spurious. That's what the literature's taught me. Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I agree just, you know, from, from certainly my perspective. And it's funny the value that others place on, when I say others, like certainly people, you know, if I get a referral to consult on an individual, you know, people put, have, you know, uh, I guess um, um, observations has, being able to observe a behavior problem in its context has a great deal of, um, you know, kind of face validity, if you will. Sure, sure. I mean, it, it's pure. nice to see, it's nice to see what people do following a problem behavior. Mm -hmm. We need to respect the fact that merely a sample, a very small sample in the child's learning history, and just because we saw it, it means it's prevalent. If we went in for a small period of time and we saw something happen on behavior, we can then understand that that must be pretty prevalent. Mm -hmm. Odds of me seeing that, you know, it, it must mean that that thing must happen with pretty good frequency. And and, and the flip side of that it's is prevalent people... doesn't mean it's relevant. It right. could be completely irrelevant. The functional analysis is the only thing that teaches us about relevance. So. Yeah. And but the... what were you going to say, Matt? About oh, I would just say the flip side is that people get really, really uh, pissed when, when you when you know you go in and the behavior doesn't occur, you know, I don't know if that's been sure. your like, Oh my oh. gosh, you should have been here yesterday, you know, or, or this, or right after you left or what have you. So. Sure. Uh, sure. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the reasons why descriptive assessment is so tough is we can't, we need to have a little more professional self-respect. We cannot hang out with one child for a day, try to figure out the controlling variable. Uh, I love we, we can do this in an hour and move on to treatment, which is really where the hard work resides. Uh, we just have to have more self-respect. No, no physician is going to follow you, no matter what your malady is. No physician is going to follow you around for a day to understand uh, what's influencing that malady. And, and we're just as important to the children we serve. And so we need to be uh, economical and part time where we're going to learn things that can help us treat the problem. I love that term, professional self-respect. That is... Uh... Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I wonder if this is just kind of like a, a hangover from the field's past of, you know, you know, looking for acceptance and things like that. We're just happy that someone's inviting us in to do an observation yes. and things like that and, and yep. whatnot. You know, we could probably spend many shows talking about why, you know, that uh, mindset has been, uh, you know, kind of uh, reinforced over the years. But well, Matt, let, let me just continue with just thread one more second. I'm interested in in this, this area is very important to me. I, I, I think, too, script assessment is held on because that's how we think we differentiate ourselves from other helping professionals and psychologists. Well, we take direct observational data. We don't just talk to people. That's how we've kind of held ourselves to this uh, unique standard. But it's really not what distinguishes ourselves. Uh, the fact that we do direct observation. Many helping professionals look at kids and record data and all that. 
What distinguishes itself is just reinforcement contingencies. We're really expert at that. And we can get at those contingencies by talking and uh, analyzing. Uh, so it's, I think it's an artifact, that whole thing where we go in with boards and watch a lot and correlate a lot. It's just an artifact of us trying to be different from other helping professionals. But it's truly not what sets us apart. It might actually uh, merely slow us down. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that might be a good segue into uh, a treatment in terms of the, you know, how you describe the analyst doing specific things and, and, and testing out things in the uh, context of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, FCT process and things like that. So um, let's, uh, uh, let's turn the page a little bit. And, you know, I guess I can describe the um, individual I worked with where there was very, very clear differentiation um, in, in both the, you know, between the control and test condition. And this was a, a preschooler with um, very little language. And uh, we did the uh, open-ended interview form. And uh, again, it was a situation where it seemed like it was escape to play. And in the context of that play, there was some high quality attention as well. Um, and so there was a whole, ho- long story short, there's a whole host of things, mm-hmm. you know, but nonetheless, when we, you know, kind of tested for it, you know, high levels of problem behavior and then zero problem behavior in the control condition, you know, and, right. and it was, you know, um, so on the one hand, it was, you know, ab- abundantly clear in terms of the, the difference in the two conditions. And I was doing the assessment with, uh, some, some colleagues of mine and, uh, who, who, and these folks were were uh, novel to this approach. I have done FBAs of different types in the past and things like that. But you know, I was like, "Hey guys, I, I'm I I think this might be a right you know the right approach for for you know this, this individual and let's mm-hmm. let's give it a whirl and that sort of thing." Um, and so yeah, yes, I was I was glad that you know we had that clear difference between control and test. It it. it Almost, however, was like I, I could see some. I understand having you know kind of read the source material and things like that. That you know the idea behind what was going on. I could see from someone else's perspective, and I, you know, I, you know, the the skeptic. I, I guess what I might say would be like, well, yeah, you're giving in. You're giving them exactly what they want and things like that. And of course, yes. that's the uh, that's the point, right? To 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 reinforce the behavior so it instantly stops. So as we look towards treatment. Um, where, where where would you go from from here? You know, uh, one of the things we certainly we, we um, started doing is, um, you know, kind of uh, doing, you know, very, very short bits of work and with a man for escape to, mm-hmm. you know, um, to play. And then we set a timer, you know, for a very short period of time and, and just started generating those those transitions back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is that the appropriate first step? Well, I probably would go even slower than you, Matt. That certainly sounds like an appropriate first step, especially because you're working off a baseline in which you had control. So let's just reflect on that analysis real quick. You say, well, there was a lot to it, right? Escape, the poise, and attention. And uh, for me, there's very few preschoolers where that's not the controlling contingency. Again, the, the, the trick is not in knowing that generic contingency. I think for most preschoolers, it is escape stuff and and someone's uh, uh, attention but it's in the details escaping from what to what mm-hmm. what kind of attention and again that's where the interview comes in the other thing that i love that you said that's very critical to me is 
the behavior turn off in the control condition and stop immediately once the reinforcement was provided? And if the answer is yes, you can have some confidence now that you can influence behavior and you can probably get away with a, a fully function-based treatment without any arbitrary rewards or punishers. So it's all promising from my perspective when you get that kind of uh, control in your analysis. Now, as far as treatment goes, we go very slow. And the first thing we do is we teach kid, uh, a child, what we call a generalized or an omnibus manned, get all those reinforcers at once. Basically, their problem behavior is doing just that. Uh, their problem behavior is turning off the instruction, then get these other positive reinforcers. So we just replace it with a manned. We love the manned my way. Uh, it, it's a little hokey for some, but it, we like that man for several reasons. One, it does suggest multiple reinforcers being delivered simultaneously, which is what we're uh, what we do. Number two, uh, I like to make sure we're going to teach a man that the child has not already admitted historically with problem behavior. There's a couple nice studies, one by Mark Kirby, showing that if you reinforce a man that the child has in their repertoire, if you will, they practiced it historically at the same time in context with problem behavior, that even if you only reinforce the man, problem behavior will come along for the ride. It's a response class membership issue. Uh, behaviors that serve the same function are members of the same response class, and those members are very sticky. So even if you're doing differential reinforcement, the problem behavior will come along for the ride if you only reinforce the historical man. So I like to reinforce new man stuff that kids have not admitted before. Most kids do not go around saying my way or hit on their voice out that say my way, please, or hand <laughs> pictures of icons, you know, that say my way. So uh, we like a new response and we uh, do whatever prompting we need to to get that response off the ground. We do use extinction for problem behavior. They usually don't experience the extinction contingency much because we um, try to do some kind of errorless teaching as much as possible to get that new mand off the ground. Uh, and once they learn that new mand, we go in one of two directions. One direction is we simply go into delay tolerance training, where part of the time we don't reinforce the man, we teach him what to do in those circumstances, and the other part of the time we reinforce the man immediately. Um Sometimes we go there, and that's traditionally where we go. With uh, higher-functioning kids, what we do is we differentiate demand before we go into tolerance training. And we have some studies that will be coming out on that. That's not in the literature yet. But all I mean by differentiate demand is the kid starts out saying, my way, please, instead of problem behavior. Once there's no problem behavior and the man's occurring at a great level, then we... When the child says, my way, we terminate instruction, but we simply give an expectant look and we shape up saying things like, oh, may I have the toys, please? Will you come play with me, please? And we get specific man going. But I want to really uh, caution people against doing specific man training initially uh, because that usually is difficult to do and there'll be a lot of residual problem behavior until all those man are put in place. So we feel pretty strongly there's a generalized mand at first to get rid of problem behavior. And then if you want to do some man training from there, so be it. But start trying to teach an escape response and a tangible response and, a, and an attention response. You're going to, you're going to find some trouble. In fact, there's a study by Mashid Gaimagami that's in behavioral interventions, the latest issue. And uh, she cautioned against that and showed some data why, uh, that's probably not advised. 
again, we advise doing that uh, omnibus mand and uh, my way, and then either differentiate it or simply move right into tolerance training. And uh, tolerance training is just intermittent reinforce, immediate reinforcement of the mand. And the other proportion of times we simply deny. We say, no, we're going to do that, and we continue with the instruction. So what does it look like? Uh, let's just go back to the omnibus man. How best – now, th- this is all work done by the behavior analyst, correct? That's right. We or, or, or feel pretty somewhere. strongly they're either the, the behavior analyst is doing the work or they're coaching a parent or teacher. But this repertoire gets shaped with experts. Uh, this is not something we kind of give to a parent and say, okay, we'll see you next week. Good luck. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's done that, by PCBAs. I, I think uh, that that seems to be a unique feature of this approach as well. Not that we don't directly, you know, I mean, when you when you think of, the, of a behavioral intervention plan, it's, you know, a set of instructions for someone else to, to do, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, so, our, our model eventually gets to that, Matt. No doubt that eventually we get to a point where there's yeah. a cover sheet and here's what you do. But we believe our, our treatment, if they're going to have merit in the long term, have to yield skill sets. Mm-hmm. And and we think it takes expertise to generate those skill sets. And so just like analysis requires expertise, the development of the skills requires expertise. Once the skill set's up, the repertoire is built, then we transfer it to uh, relevant people like parents, teachers, paraprofessionals. So what does that initial session um, look like? And, and I know you described the kind of contingencies, but, you know, just, you know, um, is, it, uh, is it something where you do it for a specific period of time or, mm. you know, what, what, are the, what are the, you know, kind of uh, logistical, pragmatic, uh, you know, uh, variables that go into play? I, I, I totally am with you in terms of, you know, based on your um, explanation, why you do the omnibus man, why you do it in a uh, uh, errorless way and so forth. Okay. But, you know, it, it, if I'm a uh, behavior analyst and I'm trying to structure my day and I've got three kids in a school that I need to see, you know, mm-hmm. you know what does that look like? Great. Okay. Super. Uh, it's going to have a part answer. First part is what do we do as the experts? And second part is what do we tell the teachers to do for the rest of the day? Uh, <laughs> well, yes, exactly. You, 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 you guessed my follow-up question perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, I'm with you. Okay. So the first thing we do is I always cut up time into small bits. We might call them sessions, but I always run a five-minute session. And I do that so I can be an analyst. So I can look at the data, see if we're going in the right direction, know whether I need to stay in that condition for a little bit longer and let the learning process evolve or whether I can move on into a more challenging uh, phase. So I cut up my time. If I have an hour with a child, I'm going to cut it up into five-minute periods. During that five-minute period, the very first treatment session is going to look exactly the same as the test condition of my functional analysis. So let's say it's a boy who... Uh, we found is problem behavior is sensitive to escape to toys and attention. The analysis is going to start out and I have toys. I'm going to give them my undivided attention. We're going to do that for about a minute. And then the session is going to start at the very start of the session. I'm going to say, okay, we're all done with these toys for a minute. We're going to do some work. I remove the toys. I impose the EO, we say, remove the tangibles, remove my uh, following his lead sort of attention. Uh, I actually always change my physicality when I go from reinforcement to the EO. So when I'm in the EO uh, reinforcement period before the session, I'm usually down on the child's level. I look very relaxed. I look subservient. I might even get under the child's uh, visual field. 
Um, and then as soon as I impose the yo, I stand up, I get all. Uh, my voice doesn't get mean, but it certainly gets a little more neutral. Do you, do you say, go from Greg to Dr. Hanley? Exactly, that's exactly right. Dr. Hanley is a pick up the white courtesy buddy, phone. That's right. It's really moving from using school language. It's moving from the child-led time to teacher-led time. And that's essentially what we're doing. And I just give them a physical discriminative uh, signal, you know, what the change is. So, again, we impose the change. We remove the toys. And we say, let's do some work. And then someone else is usually in the room, if I'm fortunate to have that resource. If it's only me, I say my way. If a voice output device, I'll put my hand on the hand, have them push the button. As soon as that happens, I then move down back into my um, I'm going to play with you sort of role. Push away the academics, the tangibles back in place. And now we're in a 30-second period where uh, I'm going to give them attention again. They can play with their toys. I give them no instructions. That's going to go on for 30 seconds to a minute. After 30 seconds to a minute, again, I'm going to impose that EO again, and I'm going to prompt that communication response. Uh, again, with, with clients that learn things through instructions or modeling, uh, at some point I'm not prompting. I'm using prompt play, and I'm backing out the timing of my prompt. Mm -hmm. uh, for other learners, I might be backing out my physical prompt. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm going to keep playing this game where every 30 seconds to a minute, I'm going to impose the EO, uh, and that EO is going to get terminated when they emit independently the generalized mand. We're going to play this game for at least two five-minute periods until they have it down where there is no prompting and there is zero problem behavior. Not only zero problem behavior, there's no frustration. There's nothing. There's no sweat involved. It's all smile. Just engaging in a very simple terminates all establishing operations and gives them access to all reinforcers that have historically maintained the behavior. And again, I do that in five-minute sessions. When I see two in a row where everything looks perfect, then I'm going to move to my next phase. Um, again, this is where it branches a little bit. We might go right into tolerance training. We might increase the developmental complexity of demand, or we might differentiate demand. Um, and so... Uh, Odds are, though, what we do is we increase the developmental uh, complexity of demand. This might happen in one visit, Matt. You're, you're there for a half hour to get the simple man. They're saying, my way. Simple man, sometimes the child's still gruff. They might be a little rude. It may be fairly inarticulate. They might not be looking at us, all those things. But we accept it because that's better than the problem behavior. Mm -hmm. But we look at any of those kind of social pragmatics and we say, okay, Let's fix all that before we get into delay and denial tolerance training. So the next set of five-minute sessions, we might start shaping. And we just pick some aspect of the response to improve. So we might want to improve the tone, the volume. We want to make sure they're oriented towards us. So again, we're going to prompt, and we're only going to differentiate reinforce mans that meet some criteria. Uh, sometimes we, we put in an autoclitic frame, so instead of my way, we now require, may I have my way, please? Mm -hmm. uh, we like to get an attention-seeking response in there. So I really, the final goal usually is for the child to say, excuse me, wait, to be acknowledged, and then say, may I have my way, please? We say, of course, and we provide the reinforcer. So that might take us uh, 10 to 15 five-minute sessions converted into two to three visits to go from problem behavior 
this kind of beautiful, developmentally appropriate man where the child was whining and kicking and flopping the event. Now they're saying, excuse me, waiting for acknowledgement before they say a more complex man. So, so again, logistically, we break it up into small units. We take data. We shape along the way. We try not to use uh, overprop. We're really into shaping, just subtle changes to the contingency. Let the kids figure it out through differential reinforcement. Uh, and uh, that can last anywhere from two hours, which again is broken up into these five-minute sessions. And sometimes it can last upward of uh, two weeks or more just to get demand really sharp before mm-hmm. we go and uh, it's tolerant for delay. Now, let's get to the second part of the question. Yeah, so doing that in those five-minute sessions, a couple hours or maybe three hours a week, hopefully more if you're in a school setting. Uh, nevertheless, we have two approaches to have the teachers or the parents, what they should be doing outside of the therapy time. If the child is not in crisis, okay, they're engaging in problem behavior. It's not to the extent hurting themselves or hurting others or at risk of uh, a displacement. In other words, they might have to leave the home or the school or the residential facility. If they're not at risk of displacement, hurting themselves or hurting others, we basically tell people, do what you did before you met us. Outside of therapy session, just do what you would normally do. And we don't ask questions. We just say, do what you normally do. And please, even though you're watching the sessions, and usually we, we don't run sessions unless the parent or teacher is watching, we say, don't take this uh, out of session yet. And mm-hmm. we like to caution people. We say the repertoire is not built yet. If you try to occasion that communication response and hold them to that high bar, and they emit problem behavior, and a lot of times people attain uh, it. So in other words, the child admits problem behavior. They say, use your words, Dr. Hanley taught you. And then the kid says, my way, please. And now we have a, a horrific pain where problem behavior uh, occasions a prompt, that occasions a man, that occasions reinforcement, and the whole mess then persists. We try to ask people, just do what you normally do until we get the whole repertoire built. And when I say repertoire, I mean communication, toleration, and now, kids in crisis, it's very different. For kids in crisis, what we do is after the functional analysis, we tell people do non-contingent reinforcement. Provide them these synthesized reinforcers as much as you can all the time. Mm-hmm. If a child is hurting staff, sending staff to the hospital with some sort of regularity, and their behavior too is maintained by escape from instructions, access to tangible and edible items, and undivided attention, we say, do just that. Do not give them instructions to the extent that you can avoid that. Provide them with their tangible items as much as you can, and give them your undivided attention to the extent that you can. And you know what's funny is that's what most people are trying to do anyway. Right. uh, Peace in those crisis situations. We're just giving them maybe license to do so. We also give them uh, another tip, and that is, when you see the child emitting precursors to the problem behavior that we revealed in the interview, reinforce those too. Uh, it's very counterintuitive to people. You want me to reinforce the precursors? And the yes. answer is yes. If you go into crisis situations, that's how people are, are managing them. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing. When people say, well, we don't see the aggression, it's usually because they're reinforcing precursors. Who are just picking up thread. 
Mace has a nice article in Java showing how you can manage severe problem behavior by reinforcing its precursor. He's not suggesting, I don't believe, that it's a long-term viable strategy, nor am I. Mm-hmm. The short-term people lit on an approach while experts are building the skill-based repertoire. Yeah. Okay? And, and it takes time to build skill-based repertoire. I think one of our main problems as behavioral consultants is people expect us to put out the fire that day or that week. And if we do that, we will be using behavior mod. And if we're using behavior mod, we're kicking the evocative can down the road. And we have to develop skill sets and we kind of need to teach the people hiring us. Skill building takes time, but that's going to lead towards long-term efficacy of our behavioral interventions. And so uh, it it certainly requires conversation. It certainly... uh, uh, has to go along with other things. Sometimes we do BMOD treatments while we're building the skill-based treatment. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, as you're describing this process, I'm thinking through the various, uh, you know, cases I've worked on. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking yeah. back, oh, well, yeah, that was more behavior modification, I guess, in the in the context in which we're describing it here. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking through how, how we might undertake this type of process. So this is pretty, you know, this is uh, equally pragmatic as it is thought-provoking so this this level of detail is is is, um really really helpful what i'd like to do is um is is, so would it be a good time to talk about toleration uh right now because this did we time as any (laughs) (laughs) because this would um you know again this is kind of a uh you know um a, a unique aspect to this and you know um I think we were chatting about this the last time as we always see, um, you know, a- as an antecedent, some circumstance describes something like, you know, s- you know, Johnny didn't get his way or something like that, you know. And so uh, can you walk us through the the, the toleration uh, piece uh, like you did the, you know, uh, omnibus uh, man process? Sure. sure. Yeah, I, I, you just mentioned a great point that I, I would imagine a lot of the kids you work with, a lot of kids I work with, Communication really isn't a problem. We go and we teach fresh communication for the reason I articulated earlier. But a lot of the kids we see nowadays communicate pretty well, know exactly what they want and know how to communicate. But the real deal is they cannot handle it when their words don't work. They cannot handle it when anyone delays their reinforcers or certainly denies their reinforcers. And so college training is the critical part of this treatment. It really is. Uh, the communication part, I think we have enough technology now where people are very effective shaping up the demand okay the tolerance training is i think where the fresh research is really happening because it is hard to teach somebody to hold it together to not engage in problem behavior uh in long periods where they're expected to not have those reinforcements so, uh, historically we used to uh, try to get stimulus control over the man and teach kids when their mans would and would not be reinforced. Uh, in the literature, that's referred to as a multiple schedule. Uh, I still think some uh, utility of multiple schedules, conditions under which we want to use them. I want to make it clear, I generally don't use multiple schedules in these situations anymore. And so I'm just going to focus on uh, what we call a contingency-based delay or behavior-based delay procedures. Uh, although the multiple schedules are viable, I don't think they prepare kids as well for the, the ambiguities of the natural environment when we lead. So first thing we do in delay tolerance training is we emphasize that we have to reinforce their communication immediately some of the time. 
That's what we do in session. We always reinforce communication immediately some of the time. Uh, you've probably seen those waiting programs people have, waiting, W-A-I-T-I-N-G, mm-hmm. where child, uh, you know, you have a cookie out in front of you and, and you kind of evoke a please, and then you say, no, nope, wait a minute, and then you turn the timer and as though we're kind of creating like uh, conditions where they're we're toughening them up to those delays. You'll notice in those waiting programs, every time they manned, we say wait, and then after a delay, provide the reinforcer. And it's no surprise that at some point during the waiting program, we evoke problem behavior and they stop asking for the cookie. Right, <laughs> if we always delay, it's exactly it. So delay is a wonderful way to extinguish uh, behavior. We've got to be very mindful of that. And how we're mindful of is we make sure we provide immediate reinforcement some of the time for the man. Okay. Which means another proportion of the time, for convenience, let's just say half, we actively deny the man. We don't. Uh, walk on eggshells around it. We don't say, oh, no, you can't do this, but you can do this instead. We really want to put the kid in the challenging situation. But we're very assertive. We can say, no, you can't do that right now. No, not right now, later. And what we do is we teach the child an explicit response to those disappointments. Just like we teach a man to replace problem behavior, we're going to teach an explicit response to disappointment. We call that a tolerance response. It's something like, okay, or no problem, or they give us a thumbs up. We used to teach kids to just a thumbs up and a smile, but that was very awkward for everybody involved. But we just <laughs> just teach kids to just yeah. say something appropriate. Yeah, it was really unfortunate. We got some very strange smiling, uh, very handsome <laughs> kids did not look handsome anymore. So anyways, we, we require some behavior and, and we prompt it just like you would prompt a communication response. When they admit that behavior, they say, OK, no problem. We provide the reinforcers. So it's almost like a little white lie. Say, excuse me, yes, buddy. may I have my way, please? No, we can't do that right now. Okay, no problem. On second thought, let's do it your way. Okay, so we're really, we, we disappoint, but they handle the disappointment, we provide those reinforcers. So essentially, it's just a little bit of an extra chain of behavior. Uh, sometimes we're reinforcing communication right quickly, and sometimes we say no, engage in tolerance response, and then we reinforce. So we're just rein- using the same reinforcement to generate two chains of behavior. Then what we do is we increase what the child needs to do to get those functional reinforcements. So again, a proportion of the time, we reinforce communication immediately. Sometimes when they say, okay, no problem, we reinforce immediately. And sometimes we have them do work. And when they comply with the work requirement or the play without us requirement, then we reinforce. So now if you think about it, we're just differentially reinforcing three or more chains of behavior. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's a shorty, communication, sometimes involves toleration and communication, and sometimes involves communication, toleration, and uh, compliance. Now, I think you have a schematic on your website of this uh, that, that, yeah. that you know, has a bunch of – it's like a flow chart of, of different trials, and what I'll do is I will um, – with, um, you know, I can link to that in the uh, the notes to this episode, certainly, oh, and I think that gives kind of a, a visual rundown of, of that. Um, so, do you and and you might have explained it, and maybe I lost it, and as I'm furiously writing down notes here because uh, this is you know you know good stuff. But um, uh, do you differentiate between delay and denial? That's a great is, is, question. Is, is that is there is that a difference without a distinction? 
Uh, I really think it is a difference without distinction for the most part, because for the most part, there is no true denial. Unless the child's asking unreasonable man, and we have those kids, I want to go to the moon. You know, I want this to be a certain way that can't be that way. So we get that. But for the most part, kids are asking for things, and it's almost always not right now. Okay. It, it's not no for the rest of your life. It's really not right now, which is truly a delay. We use the word no to trying to inoculate the child to disappointment. We're trying to teach them when someone says no, you don't flip on the ground and bang your head against the floor. You just say no problem, and sometimes good things happen. Okay. Nevertheless, no, I don't think there's a big difference between delay and denial. The only time that seems to be a, a big issue is for the kids who do make unreasonable demand that probably will never happen. And you get some kids with autism, for instance, say, uh, I want to, I want daddy to be a girl. That's literally a man someone made recently. Well, well that's never going to happen. And so uh, I guess nowadays it's possible. <laughs> Nevertheless, chances are slim. That's a and different so, episode. That's a different topic, episode entirely. you got to get someone podcast. else on. Yeah. But, but the point being is that we just expose kids at first to minimal delays. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we try to teach them to engage in behavior during those delays. And, and that's really the emphasis. We do say no, but it really is later. What, and, and what do you do? And this may be an unfair question, but, um, you know, I, I do have kids who make those unreasonable demands and, 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 and it's weird because, uh, sometimes the, you know, some, sometimes these things actually do come to fruition, but you know, the, the classic example, and this, this, you know, occurred to me yesterday is, uh, a kid sees a has a visual schedule of how his day is laid out, um, and what's at the bottom of most schedules, usually a you know some sort of uh, a signal that that, that of, of going home, and, and in this mm -hmm. case, it's a bus. Mm -hmm. um, and the kid's manding for the bus. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he, he, you know, the intent of the visual schedule is to communicate, you know, what's going, you know, to happen, obviously later in the day. Um, but he sees the icon, rips it off the schedule. You know, and is trying to hand it to someone as if to produce the bus. Of course. Um, you know, not to put you on the spot, and and oh no, please do. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate. I would hate if someone did that. Uh, you know, so can, does this model? Can you know? Is is there a way in which you know, like, so I get. I mean, I, you. Uh, so, you know, either with that example, or asking to go to the moon, or asking for you know your you know. Uh, uh, parent to, to to change genders or something like that you know <laughs> does this model account for that sort of thing or can, can you conceptualize the, de yeah. the denial uh process in in, in that and in, in something that can't be delivered or mediated easily yeah you, you can but we try not to start there i want to make that really clear we try to start with things that we can manipulate easily in session and most problem behavior is controlled by things that are easily manipulable in the immediate environment mm -hmm. and so we start there uh, but we eventually will will transition the treatment to those uh, greatly delayed events like going home, going to uh, a lot of folks we work with in residential care. It's all about getting to go home on the weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of manding for that reinforcer. And so clearly we, we wrap those situations in, but we don't start with those situations. Uh, and when it, when it comes to uh, – this is an aside, but there's a lot of research just coming out hopefully it will make us very suspicious of our complete commitment and embrace of picture schedule. Uh, you know, they might be wonderful at the beginning 
but I really think they're getting us into hot water. We, there's such good basic research showing if we carefully signal impending boom or carefully signal greatly delayed reinforcers, we are going to evoke problem behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to reconsider those commitments to visual um, with kids with autism. Um, clearly, conditions for their usage, clearly, uh, but I think they're, they're probably overly embracing getting us in the hot water. Uh, as far as those unreasonable demands go, we do start from the very beginning uh, doing extinction with these demands, and we use the terms reasonable and unreasonable. So when the child demands and they say, may I have my way, please, I want you to sit with me and, and we're going to play this game and we're going to play this way. And we say, oh, of course, of course, that's reasonable, that's reasonable. So on the, the uh, reinforcement interval, we keep saying that when they meant something we can do, we say that's reasonable, even if it's fairly unreasonable. If they ask me to stand on my head in the corner, if I can, I still can stand on my head in corners, I will do that. I'll say, sure, that's reasonable. If it's physically possible, uh, we will deliver on those mans when they ask for them appropriately. This is the very beginning of therapy, obviously. Mm-hmm. However, if they ask me to do something that's impossible, I want you to go to Walmart and get me a new movie right now, and I can't within the five-minute session. We just say, I'm sorry, that's unreasonable. And we let it happen. That might evoke problem behavior, and we just teach the child that problem behavior did not result in that event happening like it did historically uh, in their life. So sometimes we have expose the child to extinction more often and earlier in the process than we would like. And it's usually with those young uh, children, usually with autism, mm-hmm. uh, make uh, unreasonable uh, demand. I, I want to emphasize, Matt, if I put two other elements of this delay tolerance that are somewhat counterintuitive but very important to us. Yeah, go for it. Uh, one is when we're when we, we the child tolerates and we say, okay, let's do some work, we're very careful never to signal how much work or what requirement is before that delay is going to end. In fact, we have a study that is ongoing right now where we've learned that kids prefer when we do not tell them how much work they have to do or how much play they're going to have to do without us before that delay is going to be terminated. So we don't say things like, after you do these 10 things, or we don't put the token board up signals when these 10 things are completed. We keep mystery. And uh, using other people's language, I like to say we like to keep hope live. Mm -hmm. So at any moment when we say, no, I'm sorry, let's do some work first. And they do one work thing. They kind of look at us like now. And then we're like, no, let's let's do a little bit more of this work. Any given moment that play might end. Okay, And so for us, it's very important. Lay requirement is unpredictable, unsignaled, not described to the child. The other important commitment is that it's variable, uh, that we sometimes expect little and we sometimes expect a lot. And the range of what we expect is what increases over time. Okay, the average, I guess, actually, of what we expect increases over time. And then the last point is that uh, we are very steadfast in our commitment to not ending delays based on time. We end delays based on performance. So in other words, let's say we go into the situation, we know, okay, we're going to have the child do about five minutes of independent work before the reinforcers can be provided. We don't just set a timer and when five minutes is up, the delay ends because the delay might end when the child's engaging in manding of uh, the reinforcer, nagging, if you will. It might end when they're off task. It might end when they're engaging in problem behavior. In contrast, we end when they've engaged in five consecutive minutes of engagement without problem behavior and thereby strengthening that pain of beautiful behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
So uh, again, I, I mentioned a name before. Uh, again, her name is Mashid uh, Magami. He has an article under review. I'm sorry, it's um, it's in press with Java right now, and it shows the importance of ending delays based on performance, and not ending delays based on time. Time-based delay. And we're not the first one to show this. Wayne Fisher showed this. Brian Watt and I did a study on it uh, in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. Time-based delay is, is generally a loser. At some point, uh, it doesn't work. It, it uh, evokes problem behavior. Uh, so this thing we call performance-based delay or contingency-based delay, i.e. ending the delay based on expected behavior, uh, is critical to this process. That's how we get working out to uh, 30 minutes because we're strengthening chains of behavior, not chains of problem behavior, nagging, and, you know, engaging the compliant. Wow. This is, uh, as we're doing, doing a lot of myth busting here. It seems like, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, taking down some of the holy grails of behavior modification. Um, I did time-based delay for many, many years. I thought it was it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A couple self-control studies showed it was efficacious, but those were, as we look back on them, very translational studies, not really, um, you know, emulating the conditions uh, practitioners are working in right now. Cool. Um, are there other aspects of treatment that you want to um, talk about, or is the uh, omnibus man and adult um, uh, toleration get us off to a good start? Or I really think that. I mean, to me, once you have the contingencies controlling problem behavior, uh, for, for me, us, our mission is then to use that contingency to shape a repertoire, and the repertoire is communication, toleration, and compliance, and it's the same reinforcer for those three uh, behaviors, and uh, it's not surprising. Those are the three behaviors that others, including us, have shown in other studies that are focused on prevention. Those are the behaviors that prevent the development of problem behavior. When kids can communicate, when they can tolerate, when their communications don't work, and then we can follow adult-led instruction to some extent, that protects kids from developing problem behavior even in environments where there are what we might call defective contingencies, people ready and willing to reinforce problem behavior because it's so darn intuitive. But uh, Kevin Lazinski has a wonderful study in a randomized control trial showing that teaching that repertoire of communication and toleration and compliance affects uh, kids from the development of problem behavior. And it, it's, it's so it's not an accident. It's not an accident that that is the repertoire, whether you're trying to prevent problem behavior or you're doing it as an intervention, to us, we're wholly committed to teaching those skill sets. And if our treatment isn't teaching those skill sets, I worry that they're going to be back in uh, for another behavior analysis somewhere down the road. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I am uh, tempted to ask you more questions about prevention, but I don't think uh, time is going to permit that. Um so, so, so maybe you can, uh, you know, kind of work work towards accessing the uh, the prize box in the future. Right, I'm only <laughs> but, at two. That's right. Well, you know, uh, and and reflecting on our conversation, maybe I should have kept the contingency a secret, uh, or at least the, the, the response <laughs> requirement. So, um, and you nailed it. That's right. That's right. So, uh, this is a really actionable, really, you know, kind of practical information here that um, I think a lot of people can listen to this episode and, um, you know, at, at least start 
thinking how they're going to incorporate this stuff into their practice. So laying it out, laying how you actually run the sessions, the, the, the details in terms of the minutes that you do it and things like that um, is, is uh, uh, very, very helpful. So I appreciate you coming back on the show, spending some more time with us talking about, um, uh, you know, what do we do once we have these great functional analyses, you know, what do we do with that information that, that, that is, uh, you know, perhaps different than, um, some of the approaches that, that are, um, out there and are traditionally taught. So, uh, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show again, and, um, we'll talk to you soon. Great. I look forward to it, Matt. Bye-bye. See you later. Well, folks, what can I really add to that conversation? I have to say that Greg really did bring the goods. He talked a lot about uh, what it takes to do really high-quality functional communication training and how to be committed to behavior analysis in terms of uh, teaching skills. The only thing I want to do is point you into uh, areas where you can learn more about these topics. I'm going to suggest two resources. One is Greg's website, practicalfunctionalassessment.com. It is a clearinghouse of all things functional analysis, function-based treatment, prevention, and there's some uh, even some sleep stuff thrown in there to boot. Uh, it's a great resource. Uh, Greg also has a, uh, it's an online training. Uh, I think it's through uh, FIT. And it's a uh, it's a CE opportunity. So the best way to find it is to go to my website, behavioralobservations.com, and scroll down the homepage until you see a post called Great CE Opportunity. I know it's not the most original title, but it's pretty uh, descriptive, if you will, in terms of it does provide <laughs> a direct link to where you can sign up for that continuing ed opportunity. So I highly recommend it. He is a uh, terrific presenter, and you'll definitely learn a lot. So I hope that this episode gave you uh, some inspiration to not only uh, influence how you do functional assessment, but, but also how you do function-based treatment. So until the next time, uh, I will uh, talk to you later, and thanks for uh, checking in for another episode of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast. <laughs>